1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy.
0: Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. We're here with another excellent author talk. Um, here I am, Maddie, your events manager, as your host once again. I'm so glad you could join us for another episode. Um, we're going to talk about short stories today, and I'm really excited to get into this conversation with our, our featured author. Her name is Ixta Maya Murray, um, but I'll read her bio in just a second. I just wanted to say a few words about the store. Um, if you're not aware, we're still open every day right now from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, for in-store browsing and curbside pickup uh, the in-store browsing, we ask that you wear a mask and socially distance and all of that good stuff. Just be conscious. Um, your booksellers are working really hard <laughs> in a pandemic and, um, you know, they're trying their best and everything's a mess. And we really appreciate all of your patience and understanding with us right now because it's just not easy to be going to work. It's not easy not to be going to work either. Um, nobody's having an easy time. Of it. <laughs> everything's on fire. Also, did I mention that? Um, <laughs> But but we have books. We still have books. The books are here. The stories are here. The authors are here with you, wherever you are. Uh, We wanted to make sure you didn't feel alone in your quarantine. So um, yeah, we're just excited to share this conversation with you. Um, All right. So I'm going to introduce our guest, and then she's going to read from her collection, and then we'll get into it. All right. Ixta Maya Murray is an art critic, author, and law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, California. She's won a Whiting Writer's Award and an Art Writer's Grant. She was a finalist for the ASME Fiction Award in 2019. Her work has been published in Art Forum, Aperture, Plowshares, Conjunctions, The Georgia Review, Guernica, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and other magazines. The name of her new short story collection is The World Doesn't Work That Way, But It Could which I love. That's such a good title for
2: 2020. Um, Issa, thank you so much for being here today. Maddie, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this book, particularly in this moment in time where everything seems to continually be falling apart. And on that note, I'm gonna read for a few minutes from one of the stories in the collection. It's uh, called After Maria. And uh, each of the stories uh, in the book is preceded by a quote that I took from either uh, a newspaper account, uh, a study, or a uh, legal decision dealing with some of the traumas that we are dealing with right now. And I'll just begin. They want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort, he continued. 10,000 federal workers now on island doing a fantastic job. Brandon Carter, Trump slams Puerto Rico. They want everything to be done, done for them. The Hill, September 30th, 2017. After Maria. I was excited to help. The response here officially was bad. A lot of us knew we needed to react to that somehow. We wanted the victims to know that not everybody here felt like he did, but also, yeah, that's the word for it, exciting. I applied to go through my union. I'm a nurse in San Bernardino's Memorial Critical Care Unit. My union had asked for names of people who were willing to go there and do first aid, public health, whatever was needed. Our representative didn't say anything outright political, but a lot of us didn't like the president's tone. He'd said they want everything done for them. We knew that you can't talk about like you can't talk like that about patients victims I signed up right away My husband looked bashful with pride when he saw me packing my bags he told everyone at his work that I had been chosen to do triage in a crisis zone He said he'd get his mom to help with our daughter and that everybody at home would be okay without me for a little while You're an amazing woman he said that made me feel good 2 days later I left we landed in Luis Muñoz Airport in San Juan. A bunch of girls and guys from all over California, not just San Bernardino, were on the flight. We were very geared up on the trip over. Nobody drank anything and we discussed how serious the situation was. There was also a lightness about it. People blowing and speaking loudly and quickly, like they were on a date. At the airport, you could see the beginnings of the real damage. The lights were out. Hundreds of people lived in the hangars families sleeping there, eating there. We did first aid on many children. It was not clean. It was wet, there was a smell. We hiked up our bags onto our shoulders and ran out into the crowds. One mother cried as I cleaned up her daughter's foot which had been cut by falling branches. Another old woman came up to me and asked in English for penicillin. I had a few small bottles on me and I gave her two which I later knew had been a stupid mistake. At the airport, it was a populated area and those people had some care. There were doctors and nurses there. An older woman The older woman was really grateful though, you know. I told people at home about it later. I said her reaction was the real story of the people there and gave us a picture that folks in the States, I mean in our parts of the US, weren't getting over in the news. Anyway, she was thankful. She kissed my hand. I'll just stop, I'll just stop right there. So um, I'll just talk a little bit about this story that I'm reading from, which is, uh, so this this book began um, through my legal work. As I've already indicated, the stories are often preceded by uh, quotes from from news agencies or even uh, legal decisions. And I had been doing work on FEMA's failures in Puerto Rico. And I had written a law review article in a legal journal about uh, all the catastrophes in Puerto Rico and the reasons why the death toll there was so high. And in fact, the death toll in Puerto Rico was around 3,000, it was more than 3,000 people, yet the best estimates. And this is uh, uh, in direct contravention to the earliest reports where, that of 16 dead or 64 dead. So anyway, I was interviewing folks, uh, both residents of Puerto Rico who had witnessed the storm, as well as a series of nurses who had gone over to the island to do public health work in November of 2017. So the Hurricane Maria hit on September 20th, 2017, and I was interviewing them. And for my law review article, I uh, was doing advocacy and I was talking about administrative law and how um, FEMA had screwed up and the reasons why it screwed up. Its Agents didn't speak Spanish, they used technology to communicate with victims even though the power grid had gone out on September 20th. They were handing out food boxes containing sugar and salt to uh, a population that has very high levels of diabetes and hypertension. right, so I was writing this piece of advocacy and I published it and uh, that was great work legally. But there was something that was going on in these interviews that I was uh, that had friction for me, which is that what we were looking at is uh, an aid effort on the part of these very heroic and noble nurses who coming. Uh, the ones I spoke to were coming from New York and California, who were going to Puerto Rico to do this aid work. Um, but colonialism doesn't stop just because you're there to do aid. There, you you wander into in many cases, some of the nurses didn't know they had never been to Puerto Rico, they didn't speak Spanish themselves they they were just there because they had these full hearts. but they round wound up facing some uh, ambiguous ethical situations that they weren't really that, that maybe you know they hadn't been expecting, and so I decided to begin treating that subject in fiction so I could deal with the ambiguities that I detected in the interviews. And what the story tells is, uh, it's a narrative about a nurse who goes to Puerto Rico thinking that she is there to save people, and she is, but she's also making some uh, mistakes along the way. Uh, She's bossy, she doesn't listen, she thinks that she's a hero, And then slowly, all of her certainties um, get taken from her in the tragedy that she experiences. And the story is based upon an interview that I did with a nurse who had to leave somebody behind Mm -hmm. in in life, in true life, right? In the real world. So uh, that became the nucleus for the story. And I decided that I was going to deal with each of, you know, a, a bunch of the... Legal and policy traumas that we've been encountering for the past since uh, since the election, and uh, address them uh, not as a lawyer, but as an but as a fiction writer, and, and imbue that with you know what is it what is it saying the seven layers of ambiguity the seven types of ambiguity William Empson so to deal with it to deal with the ambiguity and the complexity in ways that I can't as a lawyer.
0: Hmm. That's so interesting. And yeah, I, I would love to hear you speak a little bit more about what do you think are the advantages of fiction writing versus um, reportage? Um, like, what are, what are the tools that you have as a fiction writer that maybe you don't have uh, as, as a journalist?
2: Well, as a, I mean, so where I'm coming from is as a law professor and, and as a legal scholar, I do do some journalism. I did write an op-ed piece about Rico. So, but I'm to, so I'm going to talk about reporting and uh, legal work, um, although they are very different things. But maybe what are some of the distinctions between fiction and fact-based work? Let's say fiction and fact-based work as journalism and law is. Yeah. Well, I can't say in law, what you're doing there is advocacy. So uh, if you're telling a story, you're, you're telling stories in law all the time, but if you're trying to combat the administrative, Problems that led to a 3,000 uh, body, 3, body count in Puerto Rico, you're not telling an ambiguous, complex story about a person with mixed motives uh, who uh, is making a hash of things in Puerto Rico because of um, overwhelming systems of white supremacy. You're laying out a list of what FEMA did wrong and you come up with suggestions. For how FEMA can do better going forward and as a journalist you you do have more opportunity to, have, to tell a more faceted tale but you are bound by uh, what your interviewees are telling you you can get some different perspectives but you also need a through line you need a you know you need a narrative through lines so you know uh, things are making sense that there's that the reader isn't confused necessarily and trying to and having to make up their their own decision about what what just happened in reading this piece, at least most most of the journalism that I read does not encourage you uh, to uh, wonder right at what what you just read it 's pretty much trying to explain to you what the world is, but in fiction um, you 're opened up to uh, all the complexities that exist, which is that um, under white supremacy, under colonialism, and under the current uh, regime, people are uh, handed a limited series of uh, choices and sometimes all of them are bad. And they have to pick um, one of five bad choices and make the best uh, choice that they can and struggle uh, within that choice. And so in my book, I have stories about an EPA lawyer uh, who's working uh, in the agency, in the Environmental Protection Agency, while Scott Pruitt is the administrator. And we can talk about Scott Pruitt. I became obsessed with Scott Pruitt. And she's, you know, in that story, it's the lawyer who decides to stay with the agency, even though the new administrator, Pruitt, is um, dismantling all of these environmental protective regulations. Um I also talk about option three, which was the child separation policy, from the perspective of the lawyer who wrote so option three was the name of the policy, which uh, determined that uh, immigration offer, uh, officers could separate families at the border and led to the uh, caging of children right and all the things that we were witnessing in the last couple of years and I tell that story from the perspective of a the lawyer then the perspective of uh, a guard at one of the detention centers who does separate a child from her mother. And then I tell the story of that child 30 years later and about the anxiety and, uh, that she experiences, but also how she's a fully functioning person who is, you know, just living her life. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that's how the book, that's how the book unfolded.
0: So you talk a lot about this sort of ambiguity as this, as this benefit of fiction. And I'm curious, like, what, what do you see the function of ambiguity as in, in a reader? Like when they're experiencing these stories that are, and these characters that are complex and maybe, um, you know, not, not likable, not so relatable, um, what, what, does, what does kind of dwelling in that ambiguity or what do you hope that dwelling in that ambiguity will do for your
2: readers? Well, I mean, I think there's an aesthetic and a political answer to that. Um, uh, In terms of the art of it, if you're telling a story that doesn't have much in the way of ambiguity, then you might just be writing a pamphlet or propaganda. So um, there's, and of course, for every rule that you come up with, you can always uh, find a counterexample. I teach a class at Loyola called Law and Literature, where we read the yellow wallpaper. By Char- Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And that's not a story that is uh, rife with ambiguity when it comes to patriarchy. Patriarchy is evil in that story. And the, the victimization is total and there's no upside to it. And it's just wholly destructive. She has no agency. I th- that's my reading of the story. There, there might be some counter readings, but it is not rife with ambiguity about patriarchy. John the Husband in the Yellow Wallpaper is not a multifaceted character, and yet that story is a story that survives. Nevertheless, uh, Gilman's genius aside, um, I am not drawn to fiction that is, that is attempting to explain to you and argue to you about the way the world works and to, to deliver to you one flat uh, picture of human dynamics and human relationships. As we all know, every interaction has, you know, 14 uh, different layers to it, and you're pondering them uh, for the rest of your life, potentially, and and trying to make sense of them. And so it's that that process that I hope to reflect in in the stories and that I think the reader um, will uh, need because it reflects actual life. And it also makes. I mean, and then from a political standpoint, um, I, I had to. In, I had to tell a full story of the people, um, showing that they are imperfect, and they're making wrong decisions, that they are stumbling, that they are failing, in part to show the the ways in which the current administration and and again white supremacy and classism and you know other forms of isms. Um, leave you with limited choices. I mean, people, ordinary people are being made to execute the policies that have been um, promulgated by this administration. Ordinary people are separating children from their families. They're not demons uh, arisen from the dark bowels of the earth. They are folks with kids and their own problems. The lawyers writing these policies um, aren't, right, uh, twirling their mustaches, uh, they have their own their own um, problems and are also kind of maybe fooling themselves about the what what they're really responsible for. And so that shows you the corrosion of this system, which is that it touches so so many people, people who want to be good and want to act well and abide by their uh, most um, uh, self-gratifying image of themselves but uh, uh, you know a low tide can bring a lot of boats down so the, the book isn't necessarily I, I like a book that takes care of you I like a Jane Austen where everybody gets married at the end and things <laughs> like that This, yes, but this book um, doesn't always take care of you it allows you to feel anxiety uh, and um, dread in, in a way like Claudia Rankine and Toni Morrison, if I'm permitted to, you know, uh, uh, name these great authors in connection with my own work, uh, do, they don't, they don't make you comfortable by any, by any stretch of the imagination. And I am not aiming to make my reader comfortable either, though I will say, I do reach out my hand to you in a couple of places in the book. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the title of the book speaks to that attitude, right? That the world doesn't work that way, but it could, there's potentiality there. Um, there better be, there better be. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't wanna keep harping on this, but um, do you see that there is connection between the telling of fictional stories and, the, and you know, perhaps like real world action? Is that a hope for you?
2: Well, so the old question of uh, what's art for? Uh, art has one answer, it's for its own sake, it has no purpose. But um, I'll tell you, as, so as a, as a legal scholar, was um, a law professor or whatever, um, I, I, I'm, I, I and many others have noticed how social movements, and we're seeing that right now, just you know, look out the window, it's happening right now, the ways in which social movements shape and affect law. But it's not just social movements that have a transformative effect upon law and policy or culture. It's um, gestures of all kinds, including music and fiction and painting and sculpture. Uh, these things all work together to express um, hopes and visions of a better world. And so uh, the, the connection is, is not obviously as firm as can I get a law passed in Congress? Um, and uh, de- you know, deliver um, a better um, uh, safety system to the subordinated, whatever. Um, can can I get a law passed that would um, you know provide out of work people with the housing and clean food and clean water that they need? But with art, art is part of the process that can lead to those kinds of transformations, and I believe that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of, of speaking things into existence. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not like a direct causality, but like if you are able to articulate a reality in a convincing way, it becomes more possible to achieve, right?
2: I mean, if you look at the feminist movement, it, it began with women sitting around their kitchen tables and uh, talking about their, you know, their lives. And um, women, the women of color, uh, you know, liberation movement began with women um, uh, meeting together in each other's living rooms and thinking about what what they wanted to happen. And and art and poetry and music was was always part of that endeavor. And so even the smallest um, uh, movement uh, can eventually lead to something. I really do believe that. Mm. And we're seeing, and we're seeing something massive now. I mean, we don't even have to talk in terms of uh, miniaturization. I mean, what's happening right now is just, is uh, overwhelming and just incredible. It's revolutionary.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's been cool also from, from the book world to see those, this social movement, this uprising feeding back into the art that gets produced and promoted. Um, I'm
2: excited. Yeah. I'm excited to see what's going to come out of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, it's already happening. I think, I think there's definitely, you know, it's, it's long past time for a reckoning in the publishing industry and um, we move slowly, but we're starting to, I'm starting to feel the movement happening. That's great. Good. That's great. Yeah. Um, so obviously releasing a book during COVID, not, Ooh. not great, but um, could you just talk about your, your experience so far with, with having this book out now and maybe um, a possible life or
2: life lives that you imagine for it? Right. What a what a lovely question. What a lovely idea to, to try to imagine a future for this book. I mean, everyone who is publishing and writing right now knows that they are writing in, un, uh, for us, unprecedented circumstances and that there's uh, – it's, the attention is focused so much on staying alive and sur- literally uh, surviving. I and mean, people are, are evacuating right now from Santa Cruz, as far as I understand. So, so I think that everybody's publishing right now, particularly somebody like me, who's coming out with a book from a small press. And so we're so lucky uh, to be on this podcast. Uh, knows that there is, there's a lot going on right now. But um, I wrote the book for people who need it. Um, People who, like, Walmart happened a year ago. El Paso, the El Paso massacre happened on August 3rd last year. And it's the easy, people, maybe we would like to forget that that happened. But, um, and it's, it's easy to become distracted by other things. But this is a book laying out recent history so that we can remember and think about what has actually been happening to us. It is, a, it is, an, it is an, an effort at awakening. And it's also a time capsule for the future. So, I mean, in, in the future, there will be some girl or person who reaches out and read, does read this book and, and no you know gets a glimpse about what we went through uh, this along with millions of other uh, artifacts and and that's that's my vision for the future I love thinking about books as time capsules. that's really nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they really are i mean they they do transport you um temporally and and emotionally, and that's just yeah one of those things that. COVID or no, it still works.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Um, I mean. Go ahead, go ahead. Don't just, uh, well, I mean, you were asking about COVID in particular. Um, I don't really, COVID is stunning. It is, um, you go through these processes where you think, oh, well, uh, I'm not sick. I don't know, you're just going through these mental processes all day, day long, like this is actually happening. Yes, I know somebody who's sick. It's just so distracting, and um, uh, I have been resorting to art as a way to um, locate myself. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, I just finished. I I think you're going to be asking about what I'm reading right now, but reading is has been such a central part of my life since COVID hit, and also looking at art and thinking about visual art. and performance, which I am only getting, of course, on, on the web, but I was reading Edward Danicat's Everything Inside, and I'm now making my way through Elizabeth Bowen's collected stories, mm-hmm. and um, it's those moments of recognition of humanity, that those moments of contemplation that arrive with art that um, is, is really helping me uh, re- remain, insofar as I'm able to, uh, stable within, within all the tumult that's happening.
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of people might be having a similar experience. Where, well, some people are having the experience of like I can't read at all right now, which yes, I've right. gone through that too. But yeah, um, yeah. But that that art is here for us in this time in a way that our government is not, in a way that our you know our businesses and our employers are not, and in the way our culture is not. Um, I think art is still here for for those of us who need that solace. Um, and that's, that's heartening to me. Um, so yeah, I definitely go through weeks where I'm like, Ugh, a book, why? I don't want to touch that.
2: Oh Right, right. Then you worry about what's happening to your intellect or your imagination if it's deteriorating. Mm-hmm. I now have to tell myself stories to go to sleep. So um, I'm coming up, I've found actually, so it's, so pro tip, If you really can't go to sleep, come up with a simple story and just start telling it to yourself with lots of detail and you might be able to go to sleep. That's what (laughs) I've been doing. What genre of story are you telling yourself? I have been telling, no, it's so embarrassing. I've been telling myself the simplest story. (laughs) I've been telling myself the story about a mouse named Harold who smells some cheese. (laughs) Yeah. And for some reason, he's living in an island off the coast of Maine where there are a lot of sheep. And he winds up taking a piggyback ride on a lamb. And then and I don't know much beyond that because I'm always asleep, which is the goal. So yeah, <laughs> if you're going to get anything out of this podcast, tell yourself a story and maybe you'll be able to get some damn sleep. Harold's life sounds so nice and
0: relaxing. Can so Can he invite me to his island?
2: <laughs> right. And it's not full of like, oh, all this disappointment or the cheese is, you know, is illusion or it doesn't taste very good. No, it's everything. It's all wishful, it's all
0: mouse wishful. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good pro tip. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna try this. Yeah, it works. Um, well, Iksa, thank you so much for talking with me. This has been great. And I'm, I've enjoyed so much hearing about your thought process and, and how you put this collection together. And I really hope our listeners check it out. Um, the title again is The World Doesn't Work That Way, But It Could. Eksta Maya Murray was my guest today. Eksta, do you have any last thoughts
2: or um, things you want to say to our listeners before we say goodbye? No, Maddie, I just want to thank you so much for your generosity and your kindness and your, good, your goodwill. And uh, I want to uh, tell all the people who are listening that um, miss you. <laughs> I miss <laughs> you and I can't wait till we can all be together again. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for
0: listening. This has been Skylit. We'll catch you on the flip side.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.